So we're in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Hear the word of the Lord. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Let's pray. Now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. You may have noticed as you're talking with people that it's, it's a popular thing today to speak negatively about the church. As we go out and try to invite people to church and talk to them about Jesus, oftentimes we get a response of, I'm okay with Jesus. Jesus is fine, and I may even identify myself as a, as a Christian, but this church thing, I'm done with the church thing. And then you hear some negative things about the church. Now, it seems to me, this is my perception, that in some cases, it seems to be a, a, a convenient excuse not to commit to anything, to say, well, I'll have some sort of a vague relationship with Jesus, but I don't want to commit to anything, any organization or any group of people in particular. But at the same time, I do recognize that some people have had terrible experiences in the church. They really have had terrible experiences in the church, and we need to, to listen to them uh, about those experiences that they've had, and because some of those are real and some of those are very damaging and they're, they're hard to recover from. But we have to say and admit that it's really nothing new. If you look at the churches of the New Testament, they're kind of all over the map. There are some amazing churches that are described in the New Testament, and there's some that are that are really problematic, that have some very, very difficult things going on in them. And so what I've chosen in, in choosing First and Second Thessalonians is one of the, the better churches. It's clear that Paul had a very, very positive relationship with the churches in Macedonia, which we would call Northern Greece. And those churches are the Church of Philippi, the Church of uh, the Thessalonians in Thessalonica, and probably also, though we don't have a letter to other churches like the church in Berea, but it seemed like that whole region, Paul had a real click with them, and they went to support him after he left there in his missionary journey, and at one point later on, begged, even though they were in poverty, begged to be able to participate in the offering that he was collecting for the churches back in Judea. So what we get to hear today and in this next few uh, few months is some some good speaking about the church we get to hear about a great church and that's refreshing to hear hear such positive speech about the church and it's also encouraging and challenging to us 
Because when we get to see this model church, it serves as a, an example to us about what a great church really looks like, and it calls us to be that in our day. Here we have normal Paul letter. We have, first of all, a greeting in verse 1, and it's a real simple greeting. Sometimes he amplifies the greeting, but this greeting is very simple. And then we have a thanksgiving, and sometimes his thanksgiving is very short, but here his thanksgiving is quite long because he's so excited about the church. And so who are the authors of this letter? It looks like Paul is the primary author, but he's also joined by Silvanus and Timothy. Uh, Silvanus is probably the same as Silas. And if you go back to the book of Acts, you find out that these exactly were the ones who evangelized Macedonia. Uh, Paul, Silas, his, his companion, and then Timothy, there was their younger understudy. And they also had Luke along with them as well. It looks like they left Luke in Philippi after Paul and Silas got run out on a rail from Philippi. And so uh, if we go back to Acts chapter 17, I won't read it. I refer it to you, uh, Acts 17, 1 to 9. We have the story of the evangelization of Thessalonica. Paul had gone to Philippi. As I said there, he and Silas were beaten. They were arrested. They were thrown in prison. But there were a few converts, and they left very quickly after just about a, a week there. And then they went on to Thessalonica from there. As there was their custom, they went to the synagogue, and Paul reasoned with the, the Jewish believers, and there was a good response there. There were a number, and even some of the upper crust of the society who became Christians and began to follow Paul. That stirred up some jealousy in the synagogue, and so some organized against him. They went and found some riffraff in the marketplace, and they stirred up a mob to, to, to uh, have the city in an uproar about these people who had come and were teaching against Caesar and against the customs of Caesar. And so what the authorities did, they, they grabbed the host. His name was Jason. The, the missionaries were staying with somebody named Jason. They grabbed him. They got a security deposit from him. Now, we don't know what the arrangement was, but it looks like was, Jason, look, get these guys out of town, would you? They're causing a problem here, and you're going to give us a security deposit. Maybe they would give it back. We don't know. After they got the missionaries out of town. We don't know if that was the arrangement, but immediately the believers got the missionaries out of town. They sent them on their way. So the church was born, and this is very important. Keep this in mind throughout these series. The church was born in the midst of opposition of their neighbors. They, they became Christians against the flow of society, and it was, a, it was a combined opposition, Jewish opposition, combined with official Roman opposition as well. But even so, they left behind a church. So we hear this, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church, to the church. Now, our word church probably conjures up some, some ideas, but the original word church, uh, it, it means assembly, assembly. So to the assembly of the Thessalonians. And this word assembly has a rich history. This was the word, as we saw in our series in Exodus, this was a word that described the people of God, Israel, in the Old Testament. They were the assembly of the Lord. So it's not accidental that, that they're called, these believers that are assembled together as what we would call the church, are called the assembly. In other words, they're being given the name that was Israel's name. They are now the assembly of the Lord composed of Jews and Gentiles. And this idea of assembly also means that the church, in order to be the church, needs to do what? Uh, assemble. Right, it needs to assemble. So, so what that means is 
The church is not a, a disparate group of individuals following Jesus however they might like. The church is the people of God coming together. And it's not, it's not, it's not uh, surfing for religious content online, each in our own homes. Now, we're not against technology. We use technology here. But technology is a, a help. It can never be a replacement for the assembly of God. So this, this assembly in Thessalonica is, interestingly, only in First and Second Thessalonians described as in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's, a, that's kind of an unusual description. It, usually believers are described as being in Christ or in the Lord Jesus Christ, but here we're described, the church is described as being in God the Father and in Christ. Where, where do you want to find the church? Well, how is it, where is it located? Well, this one happens to be located in Thessalonica. We happen to be located in Pompano Beach. But where do you find the church eternally? You find it in God the Father and in Christ Jesus. This is where we are located eternally. And I want you to notice one other thing. Don't get worried. We're still in verse 1. I won't deal with every verse so, so detailed. But, but uh, the uh, one thing I want you to notice, and this is, this is so common in the New Testament. It says... The, the assembly of the Thessalonians in, one preposition, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not in God the Father over here and in the Lord Jesus Christ over here. It's in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And you find this throughout the New Testament, that God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ are placed in parallel, that are placed on the same level. And so if you ask, where does the Bible teach that Jesus is God? Uh, where does the New Testament teach that? And I almost want to ask, where does it not teach that? It, it's all through in this kind of offhand expression. This is, this is, a, this is the, the presupposition as well as the, the explicit statement of the New Testament. Now, the thanksgiving. What do we have in this thanksgiving? The authors say, we give thanks, verse 2, we give thanks to God always for all of you. Constantly mentioning you in our prayers. So do you hear the all and always and constantly? They really thought a lot of this church. They, they say we remember you and we remember these things about you. And what we have in the rest of this Thanksgiving, we have the, the various reasons for which they were so thankful. And we're just going to look at each of those reasons briefly. First of all, they thanked God for the overwhelming evidence of God's work in the Thessalonian believers' lives. Verse 3, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if you're familiar with the New Testament, you may recognize a triad here, a threesome here. Faith, love, and hope. Sometimes you find two of those together, sometimes you find all three of those together, and sometimes you find those in the order faith, hope, and love. But here the, the order is faith, love, and hope. So these are three, three basic characteristics of believers. But I want you to see where the emphasis falls here. Not on these, these invisible qualities, but rather on their external manifestations. He says, we remember your work of faith, your labor of love, your steadfastness of hope. 
So he is focusing not on the invisible qualities, which some can say that they have or not say that they have, but he's focusing on the fact that these things are evident in their lives. We give thanks because we see evidence in your life of faith, of love, and of hope. And this, uh, this idea is that it's, it's work that's, that's inspired by faith. It is labor that, is, that comes out of love. It is hope, or rather, it is endurance, it is steadfastness that is inspired by hope. Uh, the NIV translation says, uh, it says, work produced by faith, labor prompted by love, hope in, uh, perseverance inspired by hope. So what is, the, what is the first thing for which they give thanks? The fact that you're Christians is very evident. It's very evident because you could say, well, I have faith, I have love, in my heart, I have hope, but is it visible? And he's saying, we give thanks because it's very visible in your case. It's so obvious that you have those qualities. And there's a special emphasis on the hope. It says, steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Hope is future-oriented. And it looks like they're saying hope in the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that will be clear as we get through the rest of the letter where there's a great deal of emphasis on the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So that is the first thing. The second thing is, they give thanks in verse 4, for the fact that God had chosen the Thessalonians. This is striking, verse 4. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. He says, we give thanks for your election, for your election. Now, this is, this is interesting because we already saw that assembly was a word that was applied to Israel. Now we have two other words from the Old Testament that are applied to Israel. We have beloved, and we also have elect. So assembly, beloved, elect. They are, they are piling up words that refer to the people of God in the Old Testament, and they're applying them to the church, saying that now the assembly of Jesus Christ, that assembly is uh, the assembly of the Lord. It is the beloved of the Lord. It is the chosen of the Lord. But this is a remarkable statement. He says, I know that God has chosen you. Can you imagine? That, that's quite a strong statement, right? Because in, in saying that, he's saying, I know something about God's eternal decree. God who has chosen his people from before the foundation of the world. These authors are saying, I know that you're included in that. Now, how can they know that? Well, once again, they can't, they can't pry into something that's above their pay grade. They can't get to access to the, the list that God has of those he's chosen. All they can do is look at the lives of the Thessalonians. And they can say, I can see in your lives the marks of those who are the beloved by God, the marks of those who are chosen by God. And there's an initial evidence, and there is an ongoing evidence of being one of God's chosen. The initial evidence here in verse four is, or 5, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. What will the elect of the Lord do? What will the chosen of the Lord do when they hear the word of God preached? They will respond to it. They will believe it. They will show that God has chosen them and has drawn them to himself. So that's the initial, the initial evidence. And the, the ongoing evidence is what we just saw. The work of faith, the labor of love, and the steadfastness of hope. So there's an initial response, but there's the ongoing response as well. It's not just, oh, I checked a box at a crusade 13 years ago, 
and said, yes, I want to be a Christian. No, it's the ongoing evidence, and they saw that in their lives, that there was this ongoing mark of God on their lives, that they were obviously the chosen of God. Would people say that about us? They may not say it just like that, but would people say, oh, yeah, definitely elect, certainly chosen by God. Yes, that one, yes, elect. They may not say it like that, but another way of asking it is, would people say that we're Christians? Would people say we're Christians by, by seeing how we responded to the gospel in the past and how we're living our lives now in faith, hope, and love? Well, the next thing they gave thanks for in verses 5 and 6 was that the Thessalonians both followed and became good examples. They followed good examples and they became good examples by following those good examples. It says in verse 5, the end of it, you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. So he appeals to their, their behavior. Now they had left, they had disappeared, remember? They disappeared overnight, these missionaries. And so some rumors apparently started circulating about, oh, those missionaries, they came and they fleeced you here. They probably asked for money, right? And then they got out of town overnight. Paul will have to defend himself later in the letter. But he's saying, you all know. You all know how we behaved when we were among you. And you not only know how we behaved, but you imitated us. You became imitators of us and of the Lord and of the Lord. They received the word in much affliction and with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Once again, referring to how they responded to the gospel when it was preached. So they followed good examples. And then verse 7, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia, northern Greece, and in Achaia, southern Greece. And then they explain, you become an example in two areas. Verse 8, you become an example in your evangelistic zeal in your desire to get the gospel out. Not only did you receive the gospel for yourselves, but you said, I gotta get this word to somebody else. Not only is this for me, but this is for the nations. It says, for not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we do not need to say anything. Now that's, that's something of an exaggeration, right? Everywhere. But Thessalonica was the most important port city in its area. And it was also on the most important land highway in its area. So it was very strategically placed to get the gospel out where? Everywhere. Everywhere. And they took that seriously. The, the gospel was getting out in all directions from them. They took advantage of their strategic placement there. And then he says, that's one way you've become an example. We don't even need to say anything about you. Everybody knows how evangelistic you are. It's gone forth everywhere. And he says, in addition to that, in addition to that, you're an example in what it means to be converted. Verse 9, they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Once again, he refers back to how they responded at the beginning. He says, you, you're an example of what it means to be converted. What's it mean to be converted? It means to turn from idols, whatever those idols might be, those false gods, those false belief systems, and to turn to the living and true God and to wait for Jesus from heaven who's coming back. And then it says, Jesus is the one whom God raised from the dead. So once again, he refers back to their, their initial response to the gospel. And their initial response to the gospel shows us what conversion looks like. 
it, it shows us what conversion looks like. It, it, it's, it's not just an, a, a, a one-time emotional response, uh, although it, it can involve that one-time emotional response, of course, but it is, a, it is a turning of one's ways away from the idols that we once served to the living and true God, to serve that God and to wait for the Son of God from heaven. Now, why would somebody do that? Why would anybody turn away from their traditional gods and beliefs and customs to serve this living and true God? When you, when you go back to Acts 17 and read about the conversion of the Thessalonians, you might wonder, why did anybody believe that? Why did anybody follow that? It was such a radical change for them and personally costly for them. Why would they do that? And the reason they would do that, or you would do that, or any would do that, is because of who this Son of God is and what he did. And here we have the summary, that this is the, the Son of God who died, whom God raised from the dead, and who delivers us from the wrath to come. That's why we would turn from our idols to serve the living God, because he's the only one who can deliver us from the wrath to come. Why? Because his Son died in our place, took our place, took that wrath on the cross so that we wouldn't have to bear it if we are in him, if we are his, if we believe in him, and he raised him from the dead, conquering over death forever for those who are in him. That's why somebody would, would, would cast away everything. Did, did, you, did you pay attention to that, that song we, we sang? We said, we stake our whole life on him. We sang, all I have is Jesus. And I stake my whole life and eternity on him. Why would anybody do that? Why would someone do that? Because he's the son of God who lived, who died, whom God the Father raised from the dead, and who delivers us from the wrath to come. That's why it's, it's worth staking our whole eternity on him. It's, it's, it's not surprising to me. It's sad to me. But it's not surprising to me when people say no to Jesus. Because that's the normal thing. That's the natural thing. That's what we're kind of inclined to do. What really surprises me is when people say yes to Jesus. Why does that surprise me? Because I'm witnessing a miracle before my eyes. I'm witnessing one of God's beloved chosen from all eternity turning to him from idols. And I'm saying thanks be to God. There is a miracle happening before me. There's nobody's conversion that is more surprising to me than my own. That's what surprises me, that, that God would have mercy on someone like me, that God would be beloved, that would call me beloved, that he would love me, that, that God would choose someone like me. And in, 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 in my time, when the time came, that he would call me to himself and enable me to turn from idols to serve the living and true God, is that, is that your experience? Have you had that experience? Have you, have you been called by God and responded in faith to that call? That's what the Thessalonians did. The missionaries went and kind of against all odds in Thessalonica, some believed the message and they believed it even though it was personally costly to them. And by so doing, they became an example not only to the believers of that day, but they became an example to us today as well. There are many examples today of people like that, modern-day Thessalonians. I just looked on a, a website that I, I sometimes consult. It's hard for me to consult it because it's so painful, and yet at the same time, it's so inspiring. It's the Voice of the Martyrs website. 
And here's a recent post, April 13th, 2023. Six Christian families in a village in the Chhattisgarh state in India have experienced community pressure from the time of their conversion. They were socially excluded and the adults lost their jobs. On August 18th, 2022, Hindu radicals disrupted their church service and took the Bibles of all the believers. One Christian suggested that the intruders read the Bibles that they had confiscated, which angered them. The next day, the group returned with representatives from the media. One believer responded to media questions by sharing his testimony of faith, which further incensed the Hindu mob, which then went from house to house, damaging the homes of the Christians. These brothers and sisters have asked for prayer that they would remain faithful to the Lord, that God would work in a way that reveals the truth, and that their village would turn to Christ. Does that sound familiar? They're modern-day Thessalonians. They've come to faith in the midst of opposition, and what have they done? Steadfastly, because of their hope in Jesus, let the word of God ring forth from them so that others might know the glorious good news of Christ and turn from their idols to serve him. When I read stories like this, when I read about the, uh, the Thessalonians, when I read about these, these faithful Indian believers, my response is this, wow, those people are Christians. Those people are Christians. That's my response. I said, that, that's what Christianity looks like. Now, I know that our situation is not the same as theirs, and we can't compare ourselves in every way to them. We're not under that kind of opposition. But still, the, the example of the Thessalonians, the example of these faithful Indian believers, the example of millions upon millions throughout the ages calls out to us that same challenge and that same opportunity in our day, no matter what swirls around us in the cultural currents of our day, may people always be able to look at us and say, wow, those people are Christians. Let's pray. Lord, we pray for our brothers and sisters in India, and there are many like them around the world. They didn't ask for prayer to be able to fix up their houses again. They asked for prayer that the gospel would go forth from them, and we pray that that would be the case. We pray for their protection, and we pray for their steadfastness of hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. And Lord, we pray for ourselves as well. In light of the Thessalonians, in light of these brothers and sisters, in light of many whose, whose lives ring out as testimony to the truth throughout all of history, we thank you that even though they be dead, they still speak. We pray that we would have the, the grace to follow their example, that by your election, by your love, by the death of your son, the resurrection of your son, that we in our day would be able not only to follow good examples, but to be good examples to others, and that people would look at our lives and say, whether they're believers or not, they would be able to look at our lives and say, those are Christians. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.